This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. So the world is in really a massive upheaval right now. And some of that is based on how we are identifying ourselves um, as a, as groups, as tribes, as, as opposed to as individuals. And we have a very special guest today, a social psychologist who specializes in this area. And what we're going to do is we're going to discover how group identity actually affects our decisions and, frankly, the decisions of our customers, our tenants, um, anybody else in our world. And I'm very happy to have with us today uh, Jay Van Bavel and uh, from New York University and uh, really an expert in this area. He's written a, a book, The Power of Us, um, which is about harnessing our shared identities to improve performance. So we're, we're always wanting to improve performance. So Jay, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. So if you would, just give us a little bit of your background and how you got into looking at the, the whole group identity area. Yeah, so I mean, I'm from a small town in rural Canada. Um, and my process was when I was in university, well, first of all, I think part of it started that I loved and played a lot of sports as a kid. And I noticed that like, you know, we'd go to the football field and flip a coin and make two teams um, or the hockey rink and we just like throw all our sticks in the middle and someone would kind of blindly throw them on two sides. And I noticed very early on that something psychologically shifted in us the moment that we were part of a team. And in particular, I had one of my best friends, his name is Jaron, um, and he, we were both super competitive. And if we were on the same team, we would get along famously and cooperate great and you know, really work hard to win. We were both pretty good athletes. Um, and if we ended up on the opposite ends, on the opposite teams, we'd be fighting you know, within half an hour um, because we were both so competitive. And so is that psychology is like a switch in our brain that goes off and it gets triggered really simply to, that can kind of make it easy to cooperate or if you're competing, can, can make it easy to tip over into insults and even, even aggression and violence. And so when I went to do my PhD, I started to study this in the lab. And I have now studied this, how this plays out in domains of like racial bias, um, political conflict. Um, I've also looked at how you can turn it into healthier ways to create like cooperation, people sharing, and also group decision making, how we can leverage this type of identity to make people actually work better in groups and come to smarter, more innovative decisions. And so I've kind of been spent the last 20 years studying it through all these different lenses. So I guess this explains why uh, people get so uh, rabid about their uh, college teams, right? Um, which has always been, myst frankly, mystifying to me as to why people care so much about a team over which they had no input whatsoever. Um, but I'm a very, in I'm a big individualist. So can you just give us a little background on why is this? What What is it about, let's start with the big picture, um, group identity in general, what makes us want to be part of a group and want to identify with part of a group? And then what I want to go into is, how this is, seems to have been exacerbated over the last yeah. 10 years in particular, um, where you've got very strong political parties, very strong throughout the world, and very strong uh, tribal, almost tribal identity um, going on as opposed to I'm part of a bigger, uh, of a bigger whole. Yeah, okay, so let me start with kind of the, the current answer. Like you said, you're an individualist. That's actually how most I Americans see themselves. Mm -hmm. um, 
and, and you know, we, we actually, there's research on this, that the more you identify as an American, the more you see yourself as an individualist, because that's part of what it means to be part of the tribe as American. Um, as opposed to you go to other countries, if you go to like Japan, the more you identify as Japanese, the more you identify as like a collectivist. And so even immigrants, when they come over to the United States, the more they identify as American over years and years, get their citizenship, the more they start to think of themselves as an individualist. So that's part of who we are here. And, and so that's actually even part of our group identity. That's part of our tribe. Hmm. Um, when you're part of a tribe, what you care about is fitting in. And that means fitting into whatever the norms are. And again, in America, that's about individualism. You go to other groups and that's not the case. Um, and so that's kind of the funny thing about, about what it means to be an American or another, a lot of other cultures are individualist in similar ways. Um, okay, but where does this kind of group identity come from? So the, the short answer is it has a deep roots. So humans evolved in small groups, cooperating, and we are pretty flimsy creatures. Like we would get picked off by predators pretty quickly. You know, we don't have sharp fangs or claws or poison. We can't fly away. We don't have camouflage. And so our evolutionary advantage is cooperation that humans cooperate better and more efficiently in groups than any other primate. Um, and so humans are the only primate that will share resources and cooperate with in-group members who they have never met. And so that's something that's baked into the way our brains are wired. Um, and then what happens is then you drop people in a culture and that can be kind of harnessed in healthy ways. And so you mentioned college sports. So I spent three years at Ohio State doing my postdoc there and their local religion is college football. Right. And they have, um, you know, on, on football, on game day, on Saturdays, you'll get 106,000 people or so at the stadium, at the horseshoe, um, and everybody's dressed in scarlet and gray, and it is fun. There are chants, there are rituals, everybody's high-fiving with strangers. There's a huge culture of, like, um, tailgating, and it's super welcoming and fun, unless, unless you're a, a Michigan fan, and then, and then it's very unfun for you. Um, but, but that's kind of like a, it's almost like a ritual, a celebration, and it's actually, I, the moment I moved there, I realized, like, this is a ton of fun. I instantly became a fan, and I've been a fan ever, ever since. Um, and so groups can be harnessed in ways that are actually fun and dynamic and give you a chance to meet other people, help the team work together, um, and create this sense of commitment and joy and celebration. Or they can be harnessed in ways, and I think you're talking about like things like polarization, where mm -hmm. it's, you know, and I have a, we've been studying polarization in the U.S., and it is one of those things where in the last 40 years, we are now more polarized than we've ever measured before. You know, we don't have measures that go back, you know, over 40, 50 years. But over time, we've become more and more polarized. And the polarization is not driven by in-group love. It's not that people love their own party more than they used to 10 or 20 or 40 years ago. It's driven almost entirely by a growth in out-group hate, which means that now people hate the other party more than they actually like their own party. And that means they'll vote for a candidate they don't even like because they really want to stop the other side from getting in. And the reason they want to do that is not just because they disagree with them on policy, which used to be kind of how politics, although I like this group's policies more than that group's. Um, but now it's that you think the other side is evil. And that makes it really kind of a toxic form of polarization um, that, that you know, spills over into things like violence. And, you know, a lot of people talk about if it continues on this pathway, it could erode democracy, lead to civil war. Um, and so it's, it's definitely in like a, going in a more and more hostile and toxic direction in the U.S. Yeah, it, it's... Uh... I mean, I, most obviously with, you know, the Donald Trump syndrome, I'll, I'll call it, where, um, you know, I have uh, family members who absolutely detest Donald Trump. They don't detest his policies. They just detest him. Uh, 
Yeah. And and it's this and and they and they detest anybody who associates who affiliates mm -hmm. with Donald Trump. Right. Yeah. And then you have uh, then I have this other group of friends. So I'm like in the middle here and sure. I have this other group of friends and they absolutely detest Joe Biden and yeah. everything that the progressives stand for. And yet, if you look at the, some of the individual policies, particularly some of the social beneficial policies um, of the, the Democratic Party, for example, they would not disagree with those. Yeah. Right. And so so what we have is we have basically a Congress that doesn't work very well yep. together because they're polarized right yep. and so so the, the question is first of all how did we get there and then the next question is um so how do we actually make this a positive for us yeah so a lot of it is um been led by what what in the, the political scientists call it elites that if you look at like the voting record in congress which you mentioned you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago, there was a lot of cross voting. Right. You have Democrats voting on bills that were proposed by Republicans, Republicans voting on bills proposed by Democrats. And, and you had people who were famous for, for working across the aisle, Ted Kennedy, John McCain, you know, his whole identity was a maverick. Um, and so you had these people who did this and spent their career doing it. And their goal was just to like get as much legislation passed as they could um, and make as much difference as they could. And now it's become, you know, you can see these like clusters used to be connected, slowly pulling apart. And then if you look at the rhetoric in, in, in Congress, it became very hostile, very moralized, very polarized, and, and we've analyzed it. And it, the level of polarized kind of hostile rhetoric has increased over time, even within the last few years. And it's really kind of like gotten you know off the charts from where it had been for many, many decades. And so um, a lot of it is that pol the, the, the behavior and beliefs and lack of cooperation from political elites trickles down um, I will say one thing, and this is something that gives me some optimism. Um, a lot of people think the other party hates them. So you talked about your friends who hate Trump, people who voted for Trump. You talked about your friends who hate Biden and voted for Biden. Um, it turns out that people think that there's, I just told you that hate has gone off the charts, right? There's more outgroup hate than there has been for 40 years, but we still overestimate it. We actually think it's much worse than it is. And if you just tell people, this is how much, if, you're, if you talk to a Democrat and say, how much do you think the average Republican like despises you out of a hundred. And then you say, well, actually we measured it and here's the reality. It's not nearly as bad as you think. People become more open-minded. And the same thing, if you tell Republicans, ask them how much do you think the average Democrat hates people like you? And, and then you show them the data about how much Democrats actually hate them. It's never as bad as people think. And so if you show them this, it actually decreases their hostility a little bit. They realize the other side doesn't hate them as much as they thought, and it makes them more open-minded to engaging and having conversations and so forth. So I think part of it is like, we've been a little misled, like it's gotten bad, but in our mind, it's like a boogeyman. It's much worse than it is. And so I think there's something useful about just, if we could give people a more honest assessment of what the average person in the other party's like. And, and I'll say, I think here's partly why it is is because we find the people with the most extreme views in each party, and those people go viral on social media, those people get at, you know, are on you know, the night, night TV or whatever crazy thing they've done is put in the news. And so we're constantly seeing like the most extreme crazy person from the other side, rather than seeing like the average person's views from the other side, which are actually more nuanced. Sometimes they actually agree with us on policies and beliefs. And so I think that's also something that's happened is the way that the media works and social media is all about 
it's the tension economy. And so if you can find a, or something said really something insane that you disagree with, you can post them up and you'll get lots of likes and follows and attention. And so we've created kind of like an economy for people to like blast out the, the baddies and not show kind of actually the nuance and complexity of what, what people actually believe and what they're like. Yeah. And yet I, I find that um, increasingly, you know, I'm, I'm a tax guy. Right? I'm talking about people reducing their taxes. Nobody, I've, I've never met anybody who liked paying taxes, not even no. once, not, <laughs> not, not literally one time. And yet if you talk about um, reducing taxes, people have strong views on both sides. I mean, people are either, yeah, I don't, I hate taxes. And I, I, and, and then the other side is, well, yeah, but you know, people need to pay more taxes. And yeah. this is the first time I've ever seen this. I mean, I've got a 45 year career going here and I've never seen a side saying we need to increase taxes. And so, so it's part of that polarization, it seems to me. And, you know, where does it end? I mean, how do you, where, where does this go from here? Because, you know, I'm looking at, well, so what do you want? You want hundred percent taxes? What, what, yeah. what, do you, what are you looking for? Is it just other people that need to pay more taxes or do you, are you willing to pay more taxes? I, I mean, what's, what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I think part of it again is that we just start to like, you know, repeat talking points of our political leaders. Um, it turns out there was a, there was a study done at Harvard business school where they looked and they got people to estimate the kind of the actual distribution of income mm -hmm. uh, of Americans versus what they would ideally want. And Democrats and Republicans actually had pretty similar ideals of what they actually want. Mm -hmm. And they're both pretty far off in terms of how it is. And so actually, sometimes there's like actually a lot of commonality underneath, but we never see it because there's not really an incentive structure, I think, for the media to show the commonalities. The incentive structure for the media is to like talk about the difference. And definitely the incentive structure of a lot of politicians is to constantly talk about the differences and exaggerate the differences. Um, and so I, I think like if you could find like a healthy atmosphere for people to like see what commonalities do exist and really focus on those and then try to find like ways to get legislature that actually lines up with their preferences um you'd be better off but of course that's how politics is supposed to work and it's broken and so it's right. not doing that right now but i think like that would be obviously there's some taxes i think society needs to to pay figuring out how to do that optimally is actually really hard and building consensus and the other thing is um you want to build consensus because the problem is in, in a polarized um, electorate is, let's say the Republicans pass a bill, then the Democrats, if they get power, which they do about every second time, right. um, well, their whole goal will just be repeal it. And right. then they'll put in a tax and economic structure, and then the Republicans will run with the whole plan to repeal it. And so you actually don't have stability for individuals right. or businesses to actually be able to effectively kind of like build business strategy and financial strategies around kind of a stable long-term uh, a plan. And so I think like that's also like very disruptive and uncertainty tends to, in my understanding, as, I'm not yeah. an economist, but my understanding is that's not something that's very helpful to. No, to it's, a, it's actually, it's a very big issue. It's a very big yeah. issue right now. And, um, but it seems like social media and the media in general tends yeah. to reinforce us being part of that group and not being part of the whole because Every, you know, when the, the algorithms are such that um, if I type in the same um, question into a search engine that you do, I will get a different result than you do because yeah. it'll be based on my history and it will come back with things that it thinks that I want. Right. So mm -hmm. it's actually the AI, the, the machine learning is actually yeah. programmed that way. So it seems like that would, would exacerbate it. 
Um, but let's let's turn a little bit to kind of a, a little micro, a little more micro and a little less macro. Yeah. When you think about, uh, let's okay, it's pretty clear that the group dynamic is strong. How how do you deal with that in a, a business, for example, with customers? Because what I'm finding more and more is is that the customers tend to be more rabid customers, but they're a smaller group of them. Okay, yeah. so it's not like you've got the entire population anymore. What you've got is you've got this population, um, you know, that that already thinks the way that you're you're talking about. But other people yeah. just they're just not willing to to even look at it. So mm -hmm. how do you deal with that from a business standpoint? Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine, he's a client of mine, he's a former board certified surgeon, and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. Yeah, so I, I, I realize that everything's kind of become more fragmented politically in terms right. of businesses. Um, and so I think like on one hand, it's an advantage because if you have customer loyalty um, and you can sustain those people, um, I think one thing that a lot of companies try to do is turn their consumers, if they are rabid, uh, into evangelists is to, and, and so what you want to do is, and this is like, uh, we write about this in our book, one of the geniuses of this is, is uh, Apple and, and Steve Jobs. And so right now I'm talking to you from my uh, Apple laptop. And if I were to flip it down, there's um, the Apple logo. And if I turn, close my laptop, I'll be looking at the Apple logo upside down. Right. And so why would you create a product that allows you to look at the logo upside down? It makes no sense. Well, the reason is because if I'm ever out at a co coffee shop or somewhere working, I open my laptop, the logo is right side up to everybody around me. It's like a little bat signal. It's a way of signaling that I'm working on this product. And so um, what they've done, and the other thing you get, this is a question for your everybody listening. I'll give you a little quiz. What's the one thing you get if you're an Apple user? What's the one thing you get in every Apple product box that is completely irrelevant to the product? Do you know, are you an Apple guy, Tom? Because if so, you might know that. I am. I am an Apple guy. Um, well, <laughs> I think there's actually a lot. The packaging itself is irrelevant to the product. Okay. Um, certainly the in instructions and, and that kind of stuff is irrelevant to the product because nobody's okay. ever opened that. Um, but I don't know what you're referring to. Okay. So you get a sticker, a white apple. Oh yeah. You can put right. as a sticker and why would they give you a sticker for a product that has the logo on it? It's so you can put it up at your office or on your bike or on the back of your car or whatever. So you can signal to people, even when you're not using your product, what you're using. Um, and so they have baked in this you know, evangelism, product evangelism right. into their product. Um, and then the other two things they do, we talk about that are really kind of baked into how to build like really sticky identities that people care about um, are fulfilling kind of two core needs people have in groups. One is they need to belong. Um, and so if you feel like the product is designed to you and there's a community of users that creates a sense of belonging. But the other one is people really want a sense of distinctiveness. 
like their group is different and better than other groups. Um, and so I always thought that this is like a, a hard thing for Apple to pull off as they became one of the world's biggest companies. Um, but if you look at their advertising, they've been doing this for like 40 years. Like the most famous ad of all time was in the Super Bowl of 1984. And it was, the ad was called 1984. And it was kind of a play off George Orwell's famous book. And it was like someone droning on to all these people like in a cult. And this woman runs up and just like smashes it. And it was like uh, uh, for Apple. And it was like, you're kind of like smashing Big Brother if you're an Apple user, you're like a rebel. And they and they and when Steve Jobs came back to relaunch the company when it was in in the it was it was struggling they had this whole uh, think different campaign where you had like Amelia Earhart and Gandhi and all these like kind of crazy thoughtful leaders in all these different domains and the whole branding was around like you are different than everybody and so even if you're using one of the most popular products on earth and you're really a pretty you know rabid conformist at this point you still sustain that sense of I'm special because it's kind of baked into the branding and the advertising. So I think like if you're, if you're trying to reach out to customers is to find a way to create products and things that can signal the brand and turn them into evangelists, but also kind of make sure that you're scratching those two itches. Like they feel like when they're part of that identity connected to that product, that they have a sense of belonging, but also that sense of distinctiveness that they feel like it's not making them a, a mindless lemming uh, to own the product. Well, I think there's a, a really good example because Microsoft doesn't have that um, yeah. clearly. I mean, people aren't rabid Microsoft followers. Yeah. They, you know, they they like Microsoft because it's left brain. People yeah. like <laughs> Apple because it's right brain. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I really believe that Apple is about a feeling, and and Microsoft yeah. is about a a task, right, yeah. and, a, and a doing. Um, but I I also noticed that people on Apple phones, you say I. You tell when people ask about your phone, you say, I have an iPhone. You don't say, yeah. you know, you don't hear yeah. people saying, I've got a Samsung or I've got a yeah. Google, I've got one of these others. People don't say that, yeah. right? Because they don't identify with that brand. Yeah. Um, and, and the people do with the iPhone, but the people who don't like Apple really don't like them. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's it, what you can sometimes have is another company can benefit from being in contrast. Like I grew up in, in, you know, as I said, small town, rural Alberta, which was truck country. And there was people who were like Dodge fans and other guys were like Ford fans and they hated Absolutely. guys who drove Dodge. Yep. And it was like, they'd wear shirts on it. They'd have pictures of like Calvin and Hobbes, like pissing on a Dodge logo on their Ford truck or whatever, their GMC. And it was like, that was a core identity of who they were. It was like what brand of truck you drove. And so you can have, you can benefit from that kind of competition um, by, by, you know, identifying, creating your identity against whatever the other dominant group is. Um, just like we do in sports all the time. Like there's a lot of people who love the Yankees, but there's just as many people, if not more, who, who hate the Yankees. Um, yeah. And so that's also part of identity is that you can leverage that as kind of the antithesis of them. So, so you're actually talking about, so this is actually can be a positive because yeah. what you're saying is, is that having those two opposite teams when you're, you know, when you're, when you're kids or, you know, in, uh, you, you've got Ohio state versus Michigan or, yeah. you know, whoever that rival is, that rivalry actually creates benefit for your business. So if your business can yeah. say, well, this is what makes us different from everybody else and everybody else is just a rival. Yeah. So what that actually builds the brand itself. So there it attracts people you're saying. Yeah, that can attract people. It can create a real sense of commitment. It can make, again, it turns your consumers into evangelists. If they start like going around and putting stickers on to signal who they are, you know, just like I'll use again, the Michigan, Ohio state fans, 
you know, they wear their hat or their, their jersey, whatever, where they're walking around going to dinner with pride and are very like confident about it. And it's signaling something about them to the whole world. And they'll pay, you know, fans will pay a lot of money to buy the swag and wear it around. Um, and so that's part of like the psychology that you're tapping into. It's the same psychology we were just talking about with politics. It can get applied to sports. It can get applied to what truck you own. It can get applied to what like computer you use. It's the same basic psychology that's baked into our brains and our DNA. And so if you're smart, you know, you can leverage it in, in ways that are beneficial or healthy. Of course, it can get leveraged against you by, you know, for all kinds of terrible reasons. But, you know, it's like you should understand it because it's part of who we are as humans and it's going to happen one way or the other. It's better for you to A, understand what's happening so you don't get manipulated, but B, understand what's going so you can harness it in a, in a better way. Well, so how do you identify that group of potential customers that is going to identify with your brand and what you do? Yeah, I mean, that's something that's actually, I think, a much harder job. Um, and so there's all kinds of different ways of doing that. Obviously, you want to get it out to the right people, find out what they like about it. But I think what you want to do is bake into whatever you do ways of signaling what the brand is, right? Like that's like the Apple logo so that it's designed so other people can see it. Um, and make it easy for other people to, to spread the word as easy as possible. Um, Building ways that people can have a sense of community. And there's all kinds of ways you can do that. You know, with like, I'm thinking like some people who identify with like rock bands, they have fan clubs right. and you get a number based on when you signed up for that fan club. And if you're a fan club, you get like special, you get like the first pass at like when conference tick or when uh, tickets go on sale and stuff like that. Or you get better seating or you get uh, access to backstage content. Um, and so, you know, influencers are doing this all the time now, or, you know, somebody has a newsletter and then there's like the special people who pay who are like really enthusiastic and they get special access and special content. So I think what you want to do is like build a community and give something to that community so that makes them feel special that they're getting for their, their dollar. I mean, this is something every airline uses now. Like right. I'm a Delta, um, like I, I, my wife convinced me a few years ago to just get a Delta card and fly all the, all my flights on Delta. And ever since I did that, man, they treat me so good. I get to go now in like the, the lounge. Um, and it's like, I've got total loyalty to them, even if it, my flight costs a bit more and they like give me free upgrades. And so if you buy into the identity with the brand, they have all these special things that you didn't even realize exist if you weren't part of it. Um, and so I think like that's something that, that helps. And then you get spread the word, right? Like I tell other people, pick an airline, become a loyal customer, get the credit card from them, um, and you'll get all these extra perks. It will just make your life so much less stressful and easier and more enjoyable when you travel. And so that's the kind of thing that's like you become an evangelist really quickly if the perks of the group identification. Well, well really that, that, that's another good example because I, you know, a lot of the bigger airlines, people go, well, you know, it's, they're, they're all bad, right? I mean, that's kind yeah. of the feeling. But People go to Southwest, at least until they had their big snafu last fall. Um, yeah. But people go to Southwest, they go, I mean, literally my my granddaughter, she'll she'll see the plane in the sky. She'll go, oh, that's one of my planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she loves Southwest. My wife loves yeah. Southwest. I, I don't, but I'm not in that group, but she loves it. And I'm yeah. going, it's so interesting that a that really the underdog because that's yep. southwest is the underdog brand right they have they've be able, be able to create a brand like that and just with simple things like um having uh uh flight attendants that are funny 
you yeah. know, and that, 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 that are, that are silly and that, you know, enjoy things instead of uh, American Delta United that, yeah. you know, they're just like, I can't believe I have to actually fly this flight um, again. So I, I think that's a, a really interesting contrast, this group identity. So um, what else, what are um, in basically in closing, if you had two or three things that you, I think uh, a business owner ought to do in particular um, to really capture this group identity and actually make, take, take advantage of it. You know, what, what would be two or three things that you would suggest? Yeah. Okay. So I'd say there's two ways of thinking about it. One is outward looking. And that's what I've been talking about so far. It's like, have a great brand identity, have a logo, find ways to make it easy for people to share and build that sense of community. Another thing is like, if you're, I, I give a lot of talks and organizations designed around what we call identity leadership. And, you know, I didn't come up with the term, but, but uh, there's a tons of re ton of research on this. And what they, the research finds is that great leaders are entrepreneurs of identity, which means that leadership kind of has two components. One that everybody knows, which is like good mentoring, one-on-one -on -one, kind of like finding good people, training them up. But another piece of it that often gets ignored is creating a sense of us and defining who we are and making people feel that and connected and, and energized around it. Um, and so that's something that's often missing from great leaders who are often really smart, highly competent, super motivated, promoted because they were very successful. And so they can pass on their individual skills, but very few of them have been trained or are skilled in kind of this, what we call identity leadership, this kind of mm -hmm. entrepreneur to create con con constantly create a sense of us among their, their staff. And so those are the things I think that like, that's kind of your inward looking Okay. Uh, way to use identity. We have a whole chapter on that at the end of our book on leadership, and we talk about that. Um, we're actually, we're writing another book now. My, my co-author Dominic Packer and I really just focused on entrepreneurs of identity and how to like use this to create a sense oh, of cool. us. Um, and so, I would say the, the thing about that is, if you unlock that, you get what's called engaged followership. And you know, every time I log in on LinkedIn, big huge issue in a lot of companies right now on engagement. People are disengaged. A lot of people don't want to go back to work full time. And there's a sense that like a lot of leaders and, and organizations, like how can we kind of mobile get energize people again? You know, people are burned out. And uh, what the research shows on identity leadership is that when you have this kind of leadership, it actually creates what's called uh, engaged followership, which means that if people feel identified with the goal, the team or the organization or whatever, mm -hmm. um, and, and they know what you're working towards, they will do it even then when the leader's not around, when the leader's on vacation, when the leader's not monitoring them, when they haven't had a chance to touch base with the leader, they're using all their creativity and, and, and all the smarts and talents that you brought them on a team, team for, and they are creatively working towards team goals all the time. Just like a great athlete is working all the time to make the team a success, right? They don't need the coach to be staring at them to be working really hard if they're actually really committed you know, to winning a championship. Um, and so that's kind of the, the way that identity works if it's harnessed in a healthy way by leaders. So, so it sounds a, a little like instead of um, a tax task focused, it becomes mission focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have a mission that everybody's a part of and everybody benefits if you, if you achieve it. So, so another thing that a lot of companies fail to do is um, every company rewards based on individual performance. You know, you talk about individualists, that's the model we have, you know, yep. ever since I was a kid in kindergarten, you get stickers if you'd got you by your, my teacher, if I got the most answers, right? right. You know, I remember in grade four, the teacher listed all the grades at the end of the year, put them up on the wall and you could see where you ranked compared to everybody else. And so that's baked in from the time we're like five years old and every company, even my, my department at New York university ranks us all at the end of the year based on how much oh. 
papers we publish. And if you're in the top category, you get the highest raise. If you're in the bottom category, you get the lowest raise. That's what we do everywhere. So I, but I'm a big fan of also finding a way to reward group success. You know, so, so I'll go back to like uh, the, the football example, Ohio State. I'll give you one story and then we can wrap up here. But this is one of my favorite stories of this. Um, the Ohio State football team, you know, in the 60s was one of the best teams in the country. They created this cool, it's one of the most oldest football college traditions, which is at the end of each game, the coaches would give out a sticker to the best players. Like if oh, right, right. I, I remember yeah, that, yeah. Get a Buckeye sticker on his helmet. And at the end of the season, the best, when the players run onto the field, the superstar players have their helmets covered in these Buckeye stickers. You know, it's a real baller move as you run on the field, all 100,000 fans cheering for you and you've got more stickers than anybody else. And, and they got worse and worse and worse until they were like a 500 team, which is really bad considering all the advantages they have in history and resources and recruiting and talent to be a mediocre team. Um, and they fired the coach, got a new coach, uh, Jim Tressel, and he got to Ohio State and he looked around at the culture there and he said, this is not working. It's incentivizing individual performance and people are going to take shortcuts that aren't going to help the team. And so he changed it. So like if the offense gets a certain amount of points, everybody on the offense gets a sticker. So even if you're like in the trenches on the offensive line doing the grunt work, you deserve just as much credit if, if, if they get a touchdown, because if you didn't do your job, the quarterback gets sacked and no one gets a touchdown. Um, if the team wins, everybody gets a sticker, even if you didn't get on the field. And the thinking is you were there all week at practice. And if you were working hard, you help the team win. You're on the sidelines, sending in plays or helping pump people up. You're, you're engaged all the time. You're helping the team win. And that's part of it. And you're ready to jump in if we need you. And so he started rewarding at these collective levels, group levels, added, layered that on. Um, and within a year, they were the national champions. And in the last 20 years, over four different coaches who've kind of kept this culture, they've been the second best team in the country on average, other, other than Alabama. And so, the, and this costs zero dollars, right? Like if you're a leader, right. you're thinking giving stickers is like pretty trivial. You don't have to get any more corner offices or big bonuses, but it's the social status you get and from the fans and, and, and people seeing it, that all of you share in is part of what happens culturally that, that can mobilize people to make sacrifices to help the, the offense to achieve or defense or the whole team. That is, that is awesome. So Jay, um, where would uh, people get more information about uh, your work and what you're doing? Yeah, so the simplest way is probably go to our book website, powerofus.online. And we have a free newsletter every week it's it's free for anybody we talk about all the science of identity and it kind of what we write about is just like what we talked about here today tom it goes everything from identity and how it's playing out politically to all to organizations to individual teams to leadership and uh and so it's free i recommend people subscribe to the newsletter power of us uh newsletter uh and and if you seem interested i encourage you to check out the book it's all there and we have an audio book um, so if you're interested in kind of like deep diving on this, learning how identity actually works and how it can be harnessed for good and not bad, uh, I encourage you to check out and buy the book. I, I love it. And what we've learned here um, over the last um, 30 or 40 minutes, which I really appreciate, Jay, is that uh, while there's a lot of distress from this group identity and we talk about identity yeah. politics and we talk about, uh, you know, racial identity and things that are pre pretty negative, um, we can actually flip that and look at the positive side of identity and how we feel better being part of a group, how uh, customers can feel better part of a group. And uh, and I, it, it seems to me like when we do that, we're always gonna make way more money and pay way yeah. less. 
And I also think um, the other thing I would say is that it's going to be with us no matter what, because it's part of our DNA. So it's better to know how it works and think of ways to use it in a healthy way. Absolutely. I love it. So um, everyone uh, come back and uh, review this recording. This was, this is one that we should watch over and over again, listen to over and over again. And want to especially thank uh, Jay Van Babel um, for this. Again, his book is The Power of Us and uh, his website is powerofus.online. So thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.